Well, the millennial kingdom and the thousand-year reign of Christ are the same thing. So if somebody references one of those two things, they're talking about the same thing. And I will jump back and forth today between those two titles. Um, so just forgive me for doing that, but understand we're talking about the same thing. And so we're going to start with uh, chapter 20. We're going to read 1 through 6. And I want you to remember that the last thing we read was the Battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the world gathered with their leaders under the command of the Antichrist and the false prophet, truly under the command of Satan. And, and for whatever reason, whatever reasoning took place, Satan convinced them that they should gather to literally fight against God. And they gathered, and you got to believe they thought they could win. But Jesus, followed by the angel army, showed up. And the angel army were simply there to witness and spectate because they didn't do anything. Jesus won the battle with the sword that came out of his mouth. And instantly, before the battle was over, before it began, because it was over in an instant, the Antichrist and the false prophet were seized. They were thrown into the lake of fire. And then the battle took place, and the, the word of God spoken, the power, that was the weapon... The sword that came out of Jesus' mouth, the word of God spoken was the power. And every non-believer, every person that had pledged themselves to the Antichrist, and at this point in time, you, were e you either belong to the Antichrist or you belong to Christ. And at that point in time, every person on the face of the earth who did not belong to Christ was killed. And, th and they called the birds to eat the flesh and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of gross, but... It's there. So now, now we're, it's literally like the day after. It's just the moment after, the very next scene in the story, moving ahead chronologically. The battle takes place, and then chapter 20 begins, and, and we move right into this. So, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his right hand a great chain. Remember, the abyss. Is, is like a, a, a bottomless pit, if you will. It's a place where it's, it's basically demon jail. It's where angels, demons who step beyond what God was willing to allow, he put them there, they're held captive. They were loosed earlier and they went and, and, and did their evil on the world. And so this abyss is there, it's empty, the door is open. And so this angel came down from heaven carrying the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon that ancient servant, serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. It's interesting to me how small that account is. It's that small because there, there is no big event. Satan didn't put up a fight there was, there was no overcoming him. The battle had already been won. Picture this. The, the, ar the armies are all there. The kings are all there. They're ready to fight against God and, and the angel army. God speaks. Everyone's dead. And Satan stands alone. Utterly defeated. In every way, shape, and form. And then God sends an angel, seizes him, throws him into the pit. He has no recourse. He's probably in shock at this time. So he's thrown in there and it says he's going to be there for a thousand years. So we're dealing with a thousand year period of time. That's where Satan's going to be for a thousand years. Verse four, 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. We don't know how many thrones, probably uh, an, an amount of thrones that you couldn't count very easily. Okay, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's where the term the thousand year reign of Christ. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be the priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And we're going to stop there. So we're going to go through these six verses kind of quickly, and then we're going to do something we don't normally do. We're going to jump to another passage that gives us more information about this same period of time. So in your notes, number one, God seized, or Satan is seized and locked away, Revelation 21 through 3. So we start with an angel. It's possibly, I use the word possibly because we don't know, but it's possibly Michael the archangel. We assume it's Michael the archangel because the archangels are the most powerful and Michael seems to be the head of the warring angels. He would be the one with the authority and the power to come and seize Satan and put him in the, in the abyss or the pit. So we have an angel. More importantly, there's no resistance because it was on God's authority. Now, Michael was not more powerful than Satan. He may have been equally powerful with Satan, but we know that the, the demons and the angels often battled one another, and, and God's angels didn't necessarily simply win. They had, to, they had to win because they actually won. In this situation, though, what's key is that Michael showed up with the authority of God. So it was really God who was locking up Satan, and he gave Michael the job of doing it. And, and I think that's some of the reason there was no resistance, is because God, who is all-powerful, gave the command, and Satan had no recourse. Also, Satan had no followers, and his defeat was super obvious. So just think of, of the state he would be in. But he's locked up for a thousand years, without incident, with, with, with really... Super easy, way more easy than you'd think. Be in your notes. I ask the question, why is there a great chain? Why did the angel bring a great chain? Not, not super uh, important, but it does show something. Because we remember back in Revelation 9-1 that, that the key to the abyss was given to a demon. So if you lock up Satan in the abyss and there's a demon running around with a key, it seems like he would get out. Now again, I would appeal to God's authority, and if God put him there, God can keep him there. So I think the chain is, is wrapped around the bars or the door. It's, it's locked, so there's a secondary lock. Okay, The chain is a second lock on the door to the abyss, just letting us know that there's no possible way Satan's going to get out. No clever person will go, hey, but there's another key, right? No, there's another key, but there's a chain also. And this chain is strong enough to keep Satan bound for a thousand years. I asked this question, see, where are the demons? And I thought, well, I'll go find where the demons are. And I did some research, and I didn't find anything about the demons. So I went to people that should know things, and they didn't know where the demons were. I found that most people who I go to for answers didn't even ask the question. And those that did simply said, well, they must be in the abyss. We're, we're literally not told. That's what goes in your blank. We are not told. 
Satan is thrown into the abyss. We're not told what happens to the demons. And, and you can go one of two ways. And either one of them works, which is maybe why we're not told, because it doesn't matter. Either all the demons are thrown into the abyss, abyss with Satan, which causes them to not have any effect on the world, or without their leader, their, their power is nullified. I would tend to believe that they went into the abyss with Satan, but we're not told. It was an obvious question, and we're just not told the answer, so therefore we don't need to know. The important part, D, what was the, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of putting Satan in the abyss? Well, it says in the text, it's so that mankind cannot be deceived any longer. See, mankind is going to continue on. All the people who were saved during the tribulation, they will inhabit... As, as the people they always have been, the thousand-year reign of Christ, they will inhabit the earth. They will have children, they will populate, and those children have a sinful nature, and those children must be saved, just like their parents were. And so God has locked up Satan, so during this thousand years, he cannot go out and deceive them. His lies will not be told. They will not be readily available. And then why a thousand years? Why... Why not a hundred years? Why any years? Why don't we just skip to eternity? And it's because the, it's to fulfill the promises and the prophecy of an earthly kingdom. So the apostles and, and the Jewish people, you remember when Jesus walked on the earth, they always asked the question, is the kingdom now? Are we going to attack the Romans now? Are you going to deliver us from our captivity now? And Jesus would say, no, not now. And, and right up to the end, probably one of the things that motivated Judas to betray Jesus was that Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do. They, they thought he should, he should raise up an army and, and go fight against the Romans and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up the promised kingdom where Jesus would rule from the throne of David. So they were waiting for him to set up his earthly kingdom even then, but the prophecies are all for an eternal kingdom. And so we have this overlap of earthly kingdom and eternal kingdom. And, and they didn't know what to do with that. And they just assumed that they would live in the earthly kingdom for eternity. And then we get to Revelation. We're going to read in the next couple chapters. There is, there is an eternal kingdom still to come. So what's being done here is he's fulfilling the prophecy for earthly kingdom. And this earthly kingdom is the beginning of the eternal kingdom. At the end of the thousand years, we're going to, we'll move into the eternal kingdom. So this is literally to fulfill the promise made to the Jewish people that, that they would rule the world, that they would be God's chosen people, they would be lifted up, they would be exalted, that their king would be the king of, of everyone, the Lord, king of kings and lord of lords, and Jesus would sit on the throne of David. And so to fulfill those promises in that prophecy, we have this earthly kingdom. It's also, the second thing there, maybe even more important than that, it's to prove that man's heart is deceitful under any conditions, even on a near-perfect earth. And we're going to discover in a minute or two how near-perfect this earth is during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so people have said over the years, well, if the world wasn't so bad... Then, then we'd probably believe in God or we'd know God exists. But the world is so bad, so we don't know. So they're blaming the, the conditions of life, the conditions of the earth. That's their reason for not following Christ. And that's their reason for others not following Christ. 
And so God is going to give them a thousand years, way more time than anyone could expect or want. He's going to give a thousand years for humanity to live in a near-perfect world. The world that Adam and Eve lived in up until the flood, where people lived six, seven hundred years, where there was plenty of food and, and they, they, they wanted for nothing, before the earth was broken. And he's going to let them live that way for a thousand years. He's going to say, yeah, I'm going to give you all this time. And, and what we know, because we've read the end of the story, is that during that thousand years, lots of babies are born. And lots of those babies that are born will not choose Christ, even under those conditions. Even when the physical body of Jesus Christ is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem... Even when the Jewish people are representing him to the world, even when all the people who were killed during the tribulation have come back to life and have their eternal bodies, their perfect bodies, and they are the government, even when Satan is not there to tell a single lie, even under those conditions, the deceitful, sinful heart of mankind will cause many to reject. It's actually described as, as a number like the sands of the shore, which means an, an uncountable number. An uncountable number of people during this thousand years will reject Christ. And he's simply covering his bases. He, he's, he's making his point that, that, that he's reached out with salvation and it's, it's not because things weren't good enough that people didn't respond. It will never have been better than it is during this time. And people will not respond. And so God is just showing that he has been fair. He has been just. As a matter of fact, more people come to Christ in times of trouble than they do in times of goodness. More people realize they need a God when they're in a crisis than realize they need God when they're, you know, on a cruise or something. So... That's the point being made here. And, and that's the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's, it's in six verses. That's, that's a, a lot about what we know here. And then we have the second half of those verses, verses 4 through 6. And we reread it. I'm not going to read it again. But here's what we learned. So in your notes, A, those believers who die during the tribulation will be resurrected to rule with Jesus and for Jesus during the thousand years. So think back to the prophecy about his birth. And it says the government will be on his shoulders. The government has never been on his shoulders yet. Now that is one of the promises that's fulfilled. The government will be on his shoulders. So, so Jesus will rule from Jerusalem. And those saints who died, they will be resurrected, given their new bodies... They will rule with Jesus and they will rule for Jesus. They will be his representatives around the globe. They will be his physical representatives around the globe. B in your notes, it mentions the first resurrection. And I only bring this up to make this point. So, so listen carefully. Um, there's, there's a group of people, a bunch of people. They're not bad people. Okay? We shouldn't like shun them or write them off or excommunicate them. But there's a bunch of people that think that this, these words right here, this is the first resurrection. They think this proves that the rapture has not taken place yet. And that this is the rapture. Because everyone in the rapture was resurrected. 
And they, they say that, that that phrase right there proves the point. Well, they have to ignore a whole lot of scripture that we talked about when we talked about the rapture. And then they take this out of context. Because the context is given here in the passage where it says, this is the first resurrection. The rest will be resurrected after the thousand years. So it's called the first because now there's two. The first one and the second one. Looking forward, from this point in time, there are two resurrections. The first resurrection, those who were believers during the tribulation who died, they're, they're resurrected now. And at the, after the thousand year reign, everyone else will be resurrected. That's the first and second resurrection. So just to make sure we fill in the blanks, believers who are raptured will not be united with their bodies until after the thousand years. And thus we have a second resurrection. So if we're raptured, we're not going to be there for the thousand year reign of Christ. We'll be watching from somewhere else. C, we have the term priests and rulers. And I just want to point out these resurrected believers who died during the tribulation, who are brought back to life, who rule with Christ and for Christ. Their job will be to represent Jesus both religiously and politically as Jesus rules from a throne in Jerusalem. So, so Jesus' kingdom will be a religious kingdom. It will also be a political kingdom. Not that we have Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians and we're going to vote for Jesus or his cabinet, but that he will rule civically. He will set up the, the, the rules that dictate our lives. This is what you will do. This is what you won't do. And these people who have lived through the tribulation, who died in the tribulation and are resurrected, they will be his rulers and priests. And then D, the most important thing about these people is they are honored in the millennium because they honored God in the tribulation. They're honored in the millennium because they honored God in the tribulation. And you think, well, that's not fair. How come they get to be honored? Well, we'll be honored in eternity because we honored Christ in our lifetime. So it's exactly what should happen. Now I want to ask the question, what will it be like? And this is where we jump. We jump out of Revelation. And I'm going to take you to a few places. What will it be like? What will it be like to live on the earth during the thousand-year reign of Christ? Now I'm going to explain a few things that are really cool, but bad news is you won't see them. <laughs> if you're saved now, you're gone. You, you're you're, you're in, in paradise. You're awaiting the second resurrection. You're not going to be a part of this, but we can rejoice in what God does. And we get to see the blessings that the people receive who were martyred during the tribulation. So in your notes, the earth will be very different. Very different. I don't know a better word than very or different. It's just going to be very, very different. I want to start by remembering the earthquake in Revelation 16, 18 through 20. I want to read this to you. It says, Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, pealing of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. Okay, the cities of the nations collapsed. Don't miss that. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. Not a good time to be living in Hawaii. Sorry. Or the Virgin Islands, or, you know, Okinawa. Every island fled away from the mountain, and the mountains could not be found. There'd be no more hiking up Mount St. Helens. Mount Rainier, okay, the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones weighing 
about 100 pounds fell on people. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. We passed by the earthquake pretty quickly last time. We're going to spend a little bit of time on it now. It says that every mountain was moved and the, and the islands were covered. And we might think that the mountains moved because there was an earthquake. I want you to think of it this way. There was an earthquake because God was moving the mountains. Okay? There's an earthquake because God was moving the mountains. God is setting up the earth for his thousand year reign. This, this was not a, I'm going to get even at the earth and there's going to be an earthquake so bad that the mountains crumble. This is God saying, I'm setting up a thousand year reign and it's going to be different. And I'm going to start by rearranging the earth. Okay, I'm going to start by rearranging the earth. We have, we have valleys that run through the ocean. We have canyons like the Grand Canyon. We have mountains like Mount Everest. And they kind of balance out. But God says the mountains are coming down and the valleys are coming up. And, and what that will do is it's going to spread out the land. And so if you remember, before the flood, we had something called Pangea. It's, it's there in your notes. And the continents were all one. There was one land and one sea. And that fits with the description we see in the Bible at creation. One land and one sea. And then all the activity with surrounding the flood caused them to separate out. Well, okay, here's an illustration. You, you got a ball of clay. We've all had a ball of clay, Play-Doh, something like that. You have a ball of clay and you roll it around and you get it as smooth as you can and as round as you can. And then you show, hey, look how round this is. It's super cool. I made a ball. Well, that's as far as I ever got, just making a ball. And it, it's really smooth and... The closer you look at it, you see little grooves and whatnot. It's not perfect, but from a short distance, it's really smooth and looks good. Then you take that ball of clay in your hand and you squeeze it as hard as you can. Try not to let anything out of it. But as you squeeze it in your hand, it goes into the crevices of your fingers and it goes into the, the deep part of your palm and, and you let go of it. Now there's mountains and valleys and, and indentions and, and that's kind of what the earth is like now and it looks different but then you can press that back into place you can push on the high spots and it'll level itself out so think of God taking the earth in his hands and, and reforming it pushing the mountains down so the land spreads out the, the ocean waters come up springs that have been covered by mountains are springing forth with fresh water again uh, the ocean canyons are, are filled in. The Grand Canyon's filled in. Everything becomes smooth. One continent. This is what God is doing. And I, I, and I can tell you this because of what we're going to read from the Old Testament. I read a description that, that John MacArthur read. And, you know, he preaches for like an hour and a half, so he had plenty of time. It was like 15 paragraphs long. And, and it mentioned all these things that, that, that people think might happen. And I've summarized it, very summarized it for you in your notes there. This, these are all possibilities. That during this time, because of this earthquake and other things that are happening, that the water, water canopy is restored. If you remember back to Genesis, there was a water canopy. And the, the water's above and the water's below. And when the flood took place, the waters from above fell and the, and the, great, uh, the waters from inside the earth came up. And that's what flooded the earth. And that water canopy created a greenhouse effect on the earth. And that very well may be what allowed people to live six, seven hundred years. 
allowed plants to, to be so fruitful and, and to, to live so long and get so big to match some of the fossils we found. Dragonflies that are uh, six-foot wingspan and, and things like that. So the water canopy may very well be restored. Pangea, one continent, may be restored. Seasons in harsh weather may end because the mountains are not there to create the, the currents and all that stuff. So the, the weather may become um, mild and temperate everywhere. The waters of the deep could be restored. In essence, the earth is restored. And, and what will it look like? Pre-flood conditions. Optimum for life. Now, I, I jump to that conclusion because I don't, I don't have any verse that says each one of these things. I have scriptures that show me the effect of these things. And that's what we're going to look at. So, so number one there... I, we know it's going to be very different. We know what the catalyst was, this giant earthquake. And, and I speculated a little bit about what it's going to look like. But here's the facts. Continue your notes. 2, 3, and 4. These are Old Testament passages that you have to look up on your own. You can look at them. They're very, very easy to understand. They're very clear. They're not hard to interpret. So I'm going to let you read them. I'm just going to tell you what they say about this time period, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the, the millennial kingdom. Zechariah 14 tells us, A, that the Mount of Olives will be split in two, creating a large valley. Okay? B, there will be no night or darkness. That was a surprise. I wasn't really ready for that one. I hadn't caught that before. There'll be no night or darkness. And that reminded me to go back to Revelation 16.10, where it says, And God turned off the light for the kingdom of, of the beast and the Antichrist. He turned off the light. And we speculated, does that mean the sun went dark? Or God did something else to take away their light. Maybe he took away their electricity. But now we look back and say maybe he actually turned the sun off because in the thousand year reign of Christ there's no night. Night is created by the shadow of the sun not being above us. So if the sun is turned off that would allow a situation where it doesn't rotate between night and day. And then in your notes this seems to indicate that the light will be provided by God himself. Which is not that big of a surprise, because if you think back to creation, light was created before the sun was created. So there was light on the earth, doing what light does on the earth, before the sun was created to be a source of light. And in the new heaven, and the new earth, there's no sun. And we know that the light that exists there is provided by God. So it makes sense that in this kingdom, if there's no light and, and no night and no darkness that God is providing the light then. So that's a big change. It tells us, see, there's two rivers that flow out of Jerusalem. If you know Jerusalem now, you know there are not two rivers flowing out of Jerusalem. There will be two rivers flowing out of Jerusalem. One will flow to the east, one will flow to the west, and they will revitalize the entire region. Right now, Israel is like 95% wilderness. The Jordan Valley has some green in it, but it's not very much. Everything else is wilderness. It's desert. It doesn't grow much food. It's, it's not very good land for doing anything with. But when these rivers flow out of Jerusalem, one to the east and one to the west, it'll replenish everything. D, it says that Jesus will rule the entire world from Jerusalem, from the throne of David. Not the actual throne he sat on, but the metaphorical throne, the line of David, the family of David. He will be the promised ruler that will never go away. 
And he'll rule from Jerusalem, literally rule from Jerusalem. And then E, it says that all defeated nations will worship God in Jerusalem. And if they don't, God will take the rain from their lands. So what it says is all the defeated nations will make trips to Jerusalem. And they'll bring their offerings and they'll worship Jesus in Jerusalem. And you say, well, who are the defeated nations? I thought all the, I thought all the unsaved people were dead now. Well, there, there were saved Germans, and there were saved Italians, and there were saved Canadians, and saved Americans, and there were saved Russians, and saved Africans. All over the world, there's saved people who responded to the call. And they're still German, and they're still American, and they're still whatever. They still have nations in this world. And these people who are saved will, will willingly bring their offerings to Jerusalem, and, and they'll worship God. A delegation will go. I'm not sure exactly how it'll happen, but they will send their offerings and they'll bring their worship. But eventually, the sinful heart of man will show itself again. And someone's going to say, hey, you know what? We've been doing this for 150 years. Seems like it's an expense. You know, we keep giving the, the offering and we keep traveling there and we keep doing this. Maybe we could do it every other year for a while. Okay, we'll do that. Maybe we'd do it every five years. Okay, let's do that. And, and God says, no, I want you to come every year. When they don't come, God will immediately take the rain away from them. He'll remove the rain. So now, the, uh, rain, no rain causes famine. Famine causes hunger. Pestilence, this kind of stuff. So they immediately start getting judged. And my guess is that they immediately repent and say, okay, I'm on board now, I'm coming. And they go back. So the nations of the earth will be worshiping in Jerusalem. And Jesus is on his throne and he is in charge. And this is one of the ways he manages the people but take away the rain. Jump to Ezekiel 47, 7 through 10, also talking about the millennial kingdom. It tells us that the Dead Sea will become fresh and alive Full of all kinds of fish. It actually says all kinds of fish as in the Mediterranean Sea. All kinds of fish. So the Dead Sea right now is a, a place where the water gathers but has no outlet. So it gathers to evaporate and it's full of minerals. You can actually walk out into the Dead Sea, lay down, and you'll float. No matter how, what you do in any other source of water. I sink pretty quickly. But in the Dead Sea I would float. It's so full of minerals. It's so dense that you can't sink. And one of those rivers flowing out of Jerusalem will fill that valley with water. And the Dead Sea will rise up and it will become very plentiful. And it will have fish, so, so many varieties of fish and such an amount of fish, that it will be world famous. It will be complete rejuvenation, a picture of what God does. And then B, it says the, the river feeding the sea will be lined with forests, forests of fruit trees. And catch this, fruit trees that never lose their leaves and produce a crop of fruit monthly and their leaves are medicinal. So I've got some fruit trees in, in the lot next to me and, and I had permission for a long time to harvest that fruit and we'd watch it and we'd watch it. We had like one month of the year, maybe three weeks, maybe five weeks another year. We had a very short period of time each year that we could get that fruit. And if we had a bad storm at the wrong time, we didn't get any fruit. So we weren't guaranteed fruit, but it only came once a year. This land will be so prosperous that these trees never go into fall 
And they never stop producing. And you can take a harvest once a month. That's the change that's going to take place. That's going to be the condition of this area. And this is not just in Israel. This is going to be spread out. I mean, this is a description of Israel. But this, this, this lifestyle will continue on. That The whole earth will become like this. The light that nourishes these plants is the light of God. The, the canopy that's above will, will create a greenhouse. And, and this will be the case. So this world is going to be a wonderful place to live. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 tells us that Jerusalem will be a delight and its people a joy. That's the words the Bible uses. Right now, no matter how we look at it, Israel is not a delight. It's a hard place to live if you're Jewish. It's a hard place to live if you're not Jewish. It's, it's a hard place to visit because of all the rules and the threats of danger. We know there's a war going on there now. It's not a delight to the world. To some people, it's a curse. Some of us recognize it as God's chosen people who he will always love and work with. But it's not really a delight. That's not how it's described today. But it will be a delight. Why will it be a delight? Because that's, God will filter everything through the land of Israel. All the blessings will come from his throne and from his people. The 144,000 will be there that he sealed and God will be working as promised through an exalted nation. Its people will be a joy. You find out you have a Jewish person living next door, you're excited. Because they're, they're a joyful people. No more mourning, no more fear. B, Isaiah tells us that life will be prolonged. Life will be prolonged. It says, this is a quote, if a man dies at a hundred... He will be thought of as a mere child. And then it goes on to say, and if he does, he died because he was cursed. Like he died because of his sin. Okay? If you die at 100 years old, you're a mere child. I mentioned earlier that I'm feeling a little old. Things aren't working like they're supposed to. I'm looking forward to that new body. Well, if some of the things we've talked about do take place, and 100 years as a child... There could be some people that are alive almost the entirety of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Because the people before the flood lived six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. And some of these people could make it the majority of the time. But their, their life is going to be prolonged. That's really new information. Okay, C, people will live in their own houses, farm, be sufficient and joyful. Now, it's not that everyone's promised a farm <laughs> and everyone's promised a farmhouse. What this is indicating, because this was their culture, what this is indicating is that everyone's going to be content with what they have and what they're doing, and they're going to have joy. They're going to be really happy about getting up and going to work every day, about, about what they get to do to serve in the kingdom. And there's going to be contentment and joy. And then D, this is a new one. It says, the wolf and the lamb will lie together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Lions eating straw like an ox? What would cause that to happen? Why would that be true? Well, if this world is restored to pre-flood conditions, there will be so much natural food growing on the earth that the animals won't need to eat meat. Maybe we won't even need to eat meat. <gasps> Did he say that? 
There won't be the need to eat meat. Do you know right now that if you go and watch the bears being fed at the zoo, you know what the majority of their diet is? Fruits and vegetables, not meat. It's fruits and vegetables, and they love it. You wouldn't think they would be happy about that or survive well on it, but it's actually the best diet for them. A lion eating straw? We think of straw as that dry, ugly grass that, you know, gives you a rash if you rub it on your arm. Well, in that day, under these conditions, maybe that straw is going to be so good that the lion's super happy to eat it. I think this tells us that this world is going to be very different in so many ways. Plenty of food to feed everything and everyone. Contentment all around. Um, a world without Satan telling his lies, without demons tempting one another, where the, the rule, the law of the land is God's law. You know, we hear every time there's an election, we need to get God's man in the office so that we can get things fixed. And if he does get in, things don't get fixed. And if he doesn't get in, things don't get fixed. We just kind of continue on. But we have this idea that there's a utopia out there, that we can fix everything. This is that time where the government will be perfect and life will be good and there will be contentment and joy and there will be no need to struggle and you can have a pet lion in your house if you want to and you can feed him straw out of your hand and the, the, the lamb doesn't have to worry about the wolf. Summary in your notes. When God reshapes and restores the earth for Christ's 1,000 year reign, it will have an environment topography, food supply, economy, and joyful inhabitants like it did in the earliest years of, after creation. Like, not the same as, but like. Before the effect of sin settled in on the earth. Additionally, Israel and Jerusalem will be blessed above all, which fulfills every prophecy and, and is in alignment with everything God ever said about Israel. All the promises that were made. Here's the last question. Is this description of the thousand-year reign fact or speculation? Is it fact or speculation? And the answer is it's fact. Okay, fact, because what Zechariah said, what Ezekiel said, and what Isaiah said are facts. What we learned about Revelation, about the, about the earthquake, that's a fact. Okay, it's fact, but maybe not as clear as we'd like it to be. And I want to say that. It may not be as clear as we'd like it to be. We have the facts, but we're looking forward. We don't always know how God's going to do something. We don't always know the exact timeline. During this thousand years, we don't know if this is going to be instantaneous or it'll start to take place and grow into this existence. So we have this as fact, but I wouldn't start an argument about this because how it's going to work itself out may be a little different than what I have inside my head. And I've got some pretty grand things going on inside my head right now. Okay? So we have the facts of Scripture that the thousand-year reign of Christ will be so different than it is now. Literally, there will be no excuse for anybody to reject Christ. It will be the exact opposite of the tribulation. In the tribulation, there was no reason to not recognize Christ and no reason not to offer his, to accept his offer of forgiveness because you saw the wrath of God being poured out. Now you see the goodness of God on a daily basis being poured out on humanity. And there's no reason to not follow Christ now. Everyone should just one day go, hey, you know what? I'm in. 
I, I believe I'm in. I want my sin to be forgiven. I want a relationship with you. I'm here for the long haul. Take me now. But so many people won't. Just like so many people don't today, just like so many people won't during the tribulation. And, and, and God is showing us this. And, and I guess the take home is people are people. We act the same under all conditions. We need Christ now. They need Christ during the tribulation. And they need Christ during the thousand years. And there's one more thing. This thousand years is, is a step. It's a stepping stone to eternity. The next couple chapters we're going to read about the new heaven and the new earth. And it's going to make this thousand years look pretty minimal. But this is, this is the transition. This is the earthly kingdom which will become the, the, the eternal kingdom. So God's showing us how cool this is going to be. And then there's a little wink and he says, but it's going to be so much better when you're resurrected. That's what we have to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time. Thanks for this explanation of a piece of the future that we can look at. Interestingly enough, we're not going to be here. We're not going to be on the earth during this time if we are believers. We're going to be in paradise, maybe getting to watch, maybe marveling at what you're doing, maybe looking forward to what's coming. But we're not going to be here yet. You still show it to us. Showing us what you're capable of. Showing us again your, your grace and your mercy. Showing us Showing us what's ahead. Thank you for the next chapters too when we see what's ahead for us in the new heaven and the new earth. Be with us this week. Help us to ponder these things, to, to uh, work them out in our own minds, in our own lives. Pray for the life groups as we discuss some of this. Just ask for your blessings to be upon us. In your son's name, amen.